If you will, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to begin, basically, and end our reading in verse 18. So just Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 18. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider what gospel worship is, what it is to have access to you through your Son in the Spirit, what it is to fellowship with our triune Lord, we, we ask that your Spirit would be at work in our own hearts and minds, giving us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you would illumine us with the Spirit of wisdom and knowledge, that you would grow our understanding of the privileges we have in gospel worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is worship? We we hear this term worship, and we talk about worship, and there's a lot of ideas about this idea of worship, but what is worship? And what's often been called really the worship wars you guys heard of that term, the worship wars, as folks have argued about this. Folks have often focused on the demands and experiences of the worshipers. In other words, in those battles, they have had arguments over what instruments you can play. I have friends who literally, in their church, they're arguing over whether or not they ought to use an organ, a piano, drums. Those are from Satan, so we know that's not an option, right? Right? <laughs> Etc., etc. They're arguing over these kinds of questions. What level of sound ought we to have? What kind of lighting should we have? What kind of building should we have? Which of these things are most conducive for worship? Should we have stained glass and natural light and organs? Or should we have a theater with robotic lighting and a band? These are the kinds of things people argue about. I I know of a group of people who left the church because the church sold their organ and they went to the church the organ was bought by. How do we know if God is worshiped? How do we evaluate whether true worship happened? See, we ask these kinds of interesting questions like, well, was I able to really give myself? Was I able to really connect with the Lord in my affections? Did the pastor and the band enable me to offer all I am to the Lord? Were there real manifestations of power visibly present? And how do we know if God is pleased with our worship? We start to ask questions like, well, did the, did the church service feel fulfilling? Were the people moved emotionally to worship? Was there a spiritual electricity in the room? I was a part of a pastoral conversation at one time in which the pastors were arguing that we ought to continue to do something we were doing because there was a spiritual electricity when we did it that way. 
I don't even know what spiritual electricity is. I don't know if I want to touch it. <laughs> and what's the goal of the pastoral staff and the musicians and the children's ministry and the youth pastor and the greeters? What is it? It's to give everyone who walks through those doors the best experience possible. And, and what we ought to do is hire a pastor of first impressions. That's a job. Who can shepherd the experience of people. All right, those, that's a real job description I've seen. We need to give everyone the best possible experience. We've got to strive week after week to up the ante, to make this week more extraordinary than last week. We need better lighting, better themes, better sermons, better greeters, better stage backgrounds, and better music. We need the service to be more streamlined, to have less awkward pauses. We need to have better timing, more attractive materials, a more grand environment. I've actually been in worship services where they time things to the minute. You will pray for two minutes. And then the song will come on immediately so that we can fill the space because we don't want any awkward silences. But always, always the focus is on increasing the extraordinary nature of the service. And that becomes taxing. So what do we do? When it becomes too taxing, well, we look for gimmicks and stunts that other churches do. Maybe we make the room really dark and get a fog machine and have the band rocking with robotic lighting happening. You know, I, I, I heard about a worship conference one of my friends was at where they actually argued that they needed, they stopped the worship service and said, we need more bass for the spirit to really move. Need more base. Maybe we can erect a cross and we can have people come up and nail their sins to it. Or we can have people take off their shoes physically and feel that they're standing on holy ground. Or, or listen, maybe let's not just pick on that group. Maybe we can become more traditional, build a more beautiful cathedral, put long robes on the ministers, erect more images that engender worship and go back to a choir and orchestra so that people can really experience it old school, right? Sovereign Gracie's questions have been wrestled with for centuries. Rome, particularly in the late medieval period, demanded uh, or answered these demands with even more glorious and solemn ceremonies with ever more beautiful cathedral usually built on the backs of selling indulgences to the poor. Evangelicalism, it's what we're a part of, has largely answered these questions with ever more casual and ever more entertaining services. I even had a friend who was guest preaching. He was guest preaching at an event and he was told, we really want you to stick around after the sermon because as soon as you're done preaching, we are going to shoot a guy out of a cannon. I, I mean, that's serious. And he thought, you mean I'm going to get done preaching the word of God and then you guys are going to say now to really up the ante. We're going to fire a man from a cannon. <laughs> you, <laughs> that really happened. That's not a joke. 
And you might be asking in the midst of this, you can go to the extremes Rome has gone to with the smells and bells and the stained glass and the beautiful cathedrals, or you can go to the extreme that evangelicals have gone to with, with, band, with concerts essentially happening and motivational entertaining speeches, etc. Who's right? See, what, what's the best way to come at it? Should we have bands and choirs? Or, I mean, bands or choirs, right? Which one? See, <laughs> choirs, like choirs. Get rid of the bands and the choir. Should we have stained glass and natural lighting or a theater with robotic lighting? Here, here's what I'm getting at. We're often coming at this question in a completely idolatrous fashion. We're coming at it in a way that misses the glory of gospel worship. We need to ask the right question and we need to answer the right question biblically. Here's the right question. What is gospel worship? What is gospel worship? Now I'm gonna attempt to define gospel worship in three parts. I'm gonna take the first two parts today and the third part next week. And you say, what does that third part have anything to do with Christmas? I'll tell you next week. But gospel worship, this is the first part that I'm gonna talk about. Gospel worship is the communion of the Holy Trinity with his people. Gospel worship is the communion of the Holy Trinity with his people. The second one, gospel worship is a spiritual and heavenly reality. The third one, gospel worship employs ordinary means. That's the one I'm taking next week. So what is gospel worship? Here's my definition. Gospel worship is the communion or fellowship of the Holy Trinity with his people. Did you catch that definition? I'm sure I stole it from somebody else. I don't remember who. But gospel worship is the communion or the fellowship of the Holy Trinity with his people. Look at Ephesians 2.18. For through him, that him there is speaking of Jesus, the Son. Through him, we both have, and that we both incidentally is speaking of Jews and Gentiles. I'll get to that in a second. We both have access in one spirit to the Father. Now Paul's been speaking of the fact that Jews and Gentiles are saved in the same manner by the same Christ. He started that in verse 11 of chapter two, laying out the idea that, that we, both Jews and Gentiles, are brought to salvation through the same Christ in the same manner. He's arguing that there is now in the gospel no division between Jews and Gentiles, that the ground is leveled at the foot of the cross. Sinners, that's true for all of us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross, whether you're male, female, slave, free, wealthy, poor, Jew, Gentile, black, white, it doesn't matter. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. We recognize there that we are all sinners, equally condemned by the justice of God and all in need of a savior and that Jesus is alone the only savior. There is no Jew or Gentile. There is no slave or free. There is no male or female. In Christ, we're all one. And now as Paul progresses in his argument, he moves to the pinnacle, to the apex of that argument, which is verse 18. For through him, through the Christ, through Jesus, through the Son, we both have, now notice this word, 
access in one spirit to the Father. Notice what Paul's arguing here. Through Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father. Worship, in other words, is always Christ-mediated. Always. The whole house of worship is built upon union with Jesus. Look at Ephesians 2, 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's speaking to the Gentiles there. But you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Now notice this household. What's it built on? Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. In other words, what we now call the word of God. Built on that foundation. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. See, God dwells in his holy temple. And his church, through their union with the Son, with Jesus Christ, is that holy temple in which God dwells. But I want to stress this. How do you gain access to the Father? Through him. Through him we both have access. Apart from Jesus, there is no access to the Father. Let me make this clear. It's hard for us to accept, particularly when we like to go to ecumenical prayer meetings and we like to get together with our friends and family and tell one another we're praying for each other. And Unbelievers cannot worship the one true God. They worship. But when they're promising you they'll pray for you, they're prayers to a false God. Hear that? They may be wholly ignorant of that. They are wholly ignorant of that, frankly. But they're not praying to the one true God. They have no fellowship with the Holy Trinity. They are sinners who are opposed to God and to whom God is opposed. They're his enemies. They have no access to the Father because they do not look to Jesus in faith. Apart from Jesus, we stand condemned. But that is a basic gospel truth that I don't think most of us really internalize and think about the implications of. We certainly, I would say, are fearful of opening our mouths and declaring that. I mean, it can be tacky, right? You're at a party and someone says, oh, I'll pray for you. Well, I don't want to pray to your idolatrous God. I mean, I'm not saying handle it that way, okay? Like, that's not what I'm suggesting to you. That's just rude, right? But, but there, there is a way to recognize that their promise of prayer for you is not something you ought to take comfort in. And that the fact that they think they ought to pray ought to be an opening for you to begin to press into the gospel. You want to pray? Great. All right, let's talk about the Lord to whom we're praying. Who is he? How do you know him? Through whom do you have access to him? Him? 
That's why Christian worship is necessarily grounded in the gospel. That's why I called it gospel worship. Not because we worship the gospel, you understand? Because it's in the gospel that we worship. For we believe that no one comes to the Father but through Jesus. It's that exclusivity of the gospel that really irritates folks. You know that, right? You tell people Jesus saved you. They go, that's, that's, that's beautiful. I'm so thankful for you that you love Jesus and you're following Jesus. And that's so nice for you. Right? It's when you turn and say, well, if you don't follow him, you're condemned to hell, that they get a little irritated. Now, look at Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Keep your hand in Ephesians Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, I want to look at another use of this word, access. It's not used often. It's generally used by Paul in the exact same way. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, in other words, declared righteous, forgiven our sins through the instrumentality of faith, faith itself is not some virtue that saves you, but faith is a looking to the object who saves you? You're looking to Jesus. Since you've been justified, declared righteous, forgiven for your sins, for looking to Jesus, we have, look, notice this, peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you not have if you're not looking to Christ? You don't have peace with God. You don't have reconciliation with him. You're his enemy, he's your enemy. We have peace with God through, how do we have it? Our Lord Jesus Christ, through him, notice this emphasis, through him, through Jesus Christ, we have also obtain, obtained access by faith into this what? Grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We were declared righteous and forgiven our sins through faith in Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. What is the grace in which we stand? Fellowship with the Father, with his Son, and with the Holy Spirit. Fellowship with the Holy Trinity is only through the Son. So whatever else we say about worship, understand this. Whatever else attends worship outwardly, Bands, choirs, orchestras, buildings, lighting, whatever it is. If it isn't Christ-mediated, if it isn't gospel-centered, then it's useless. It's idolatrous. But further, worship is also in or by the Holy Spirit. Look back at Ephesians 2. 18, we don't want to just say it's mediated by Christ, because that's not all Paul says. For through him, through Jesus, Ephesians 2, 18, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Worship is in or by the Holy Spirit. In one spirit, that's clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit. We know that because when you go back down to verse 22, in him you also are being built together in a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're still talking about the Holy Spirit. He is the one, Jesus says in John 3, who gives spiritual birth. The Holy Spirit is the one who gives eyes to see and ears to hear and faith to believe in Jesus Christ. He's the one who gives life to the spiritually dead. He breathed life into the old creation and he breathes life into the new creation. He unites us to Christ the Son through faith. 
Thus, fellowship with the Holy Trinity only happens in him. Through his empowering and indwelling presence. That's the only way fellowship with the Holy Trinity happens. The Holy Spirit indwells the church, strengthens the church, assists the church. He brings us, the Holy Spirit, he brings us near to God and brings God near to us. He sanctifies us so that we're a holy people with whom and in whom the Holy Trinity will dwell. Look at Ephesians 2.22 again. In him, that's in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. Worship is always and only through Jesus and in the Spirit. I'm going to get to this in a more heavy way in the next point, that worship is always spiritual. But, but let, me, let me just say this. You can have the grandest external worship service in the world with the most emotional affect anybody's ever experienced. But apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, it's dead and useless. Worship is only through the Son and in the Spirit. That's the only way we have access to the Father. Look at Ephesians 2.18 again. I want to emphasize this last part of it. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Notice the importance of those prepositions. Through Jesus, in the Spirit, to the Father. We have access to the Father. We get to fellowship with the Father. We are a dwelling place for God, the Father himself dwells with us through the Son and in the Spirit. John, Jesus, it's not just Paul says that, Jesus says that in John 14. The Father and I will come and make our home in you. He is not just the Father, he's our Father. How does Jesus teach us to pray? He teaches the disciples, when you pray, you pray, our Father who art in heaven. You're not approaching him as the Father who's distant from you. You're approaching him as our Father, whom we've drawn near to, whom we have access to, whom we are in relationship with. That's gospel worship, the fellowship of the Holy Trinity with his people. Now, I want you to notice how I worded that. I emphasize that worship is his fellowship with us. Did you hear that? Please pay attention to this. Worship is his fellowship, the Trinity's fellowship, with us. I'm not saying we do not also fellowship with him, so please don't misunderstand me. I'm saying we must emphasize the gospel ordering of these things. We did not create and we did not redeem. We were created, passive. We were saved, passive. God was the agent who affected all that. And in worship, God is the primary agent. Man, that will tweak your whole understanding of what happens on Sunday morning if you gather that. In worship, God is the primary one working. When we gather for worship, we don't give to him that he is somehow 
improved by us. You hear that? We don't, we don't come together for his gain. We don't, we don't add a single thing to him. Even when we glorify him, we aren't adding to his glory. We're just reflecting the truth about who he is. His glory is infinite. You know how much you can add to infinity? Okay, You don't have to be a math major to know that. Nothing. Rather, we're receiving. When we gather for worship, we're receiving from his infinite glory. In worship, we're receiving grace upon grace. He's giving himself to us, and we're receiving him. You might say, but don't we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice? Yes, we do. But we, when we do offer ourselves as a living sacrifice, we're offering what's already his. You understand you belong to him. He's not lacking you, and then he, then he gains you. Now he's added to himself. You already belong to him. You're only offering what's already his. And guess who receives the blessing in that? You do. God needs nothing. He is in no way improved by us. He gives, we receive. You know, we're used to the giving and receiving relationship, give and take. I give, you know, you take, you, you know, and then you give and I take, and that's the way human relationships work. There is no give and take with God. He gives and he gives and he gives. There is no need for him to take anything. He has everything. He just gives. We receive. Understand this. Worship is the meeting place between heaven and earth. You catch that? And we're not the ones who bridge that distance. We gather for worship to receive from the gracious and kind hand of our loving Father. And that leads to my second point that I want to get to today, which is that gospel worship is a, spiritually, a spiritual sorry, and heavenly reality. Gospel worship is a spiritual and heavenly reality. Look at Ephesians 2 and verse 21. In whom, that's speaking of Jesus, the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, this is speaking of this temple, this household of God, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. I want to explain what Paul's getting at here a bit, but I, I want to say this first. We're often so focused on the outward elements of worship, we miss the powerful change that takes place in the New Testament. You remember um, the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman, the woman at the well, who he encounters and begins to talk about, and she, he asks for water, and then he offers her water that will quench her thirst forever, living water, speaking of the Holy Spirit, whom he pours out. And they begin to talk about worship, and, the Jew, and what Jews believe about worship and what Samaritans believe about worship and the coming of the Messiah. And we have this exchange when he tells this woman, the Samaritan woman, he tells her this. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. And when you, when you hear Jesus say the hour is coming, he's talking about some, and I'm going to use this word, eschatological event. Some event in redemptive history that the whole Bible's been promising. It's leading to this hour, this time, this day. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain, 
That's the mountain for the Samaritans where they worshiped. Nor in Jerusalem, the mountain where the Jews gathered to worship. Will you worship the Father? You worship what you do not know, speaking to Samaritans. We worship what we know, speaking of Jews, for salvation is from the Jews. The Father elected them. He gave them the promises and the covenants, etc., the patriarchs. He says, listen, but the hour is coming. Now catch this, and is now here. Now, now why is it here? Because Jesus is here. When the fullness of time came, Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. The hour is coming and is now here, now catch this, is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, I don't have time to exposit that whole text and what all that means. Let me just emphasize this. Jesus is talking about a change in redemptive history and of worship that happens. Folks will no longer come to the temple in Jerusalem on that mountain to worship God who dwells there in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle of, temple, or the, of the temple. Rather, we will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. He's referencing the same change that Paul is talking about. The church, those united Christ through faith by the Spirit, are now the holy temple. It was once on a mountain in Jerusalem. But now the church is the holy temple. We are no longer like Israel of the Old Testament. You know how worship happened for them? They fearfully stood far off from where God dwelled in the holy of holies, the tabernacle or the temple. They fearfully stood far off from where God was dwelling as a priest went in to offer atonement for them. But something's changed, Jesus says. Now we confidently draw near to God. We don't fearfully stand afar from his presence. We confidently draw near to him through Christ and in the Spirit. The old covenant tabernacle or temple was a copy of the heavenly realities now brought near to us. When speaking about the tabernacle and its appointments in the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews tells us this. So look at Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5. He's been talking about the Old Covenant worship, the tabernacle where, the whole, where God dwelt in the Holy of Holies, the sacrifices that were offered by the high priest, etc., etc., and then in Hebrews 8 and verse 5, he said this, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that's the tabernacle, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain while he was on Mount Sinai. He was given a pattern. It was a pattern of heaven. And he was making everything after that pattern. So I want you to think of this. They had a glorious household of God built upon a mountain. A tabernacle or later became a temp, gave way to the temple under Solomon. And the wealth of the temple, 
their pride in the outward beauty of the temple and the ornate appointments of that building far exceed anything we're ever going to build. You follow that? Further, it was beautifully furnished. It had ceremonies of the highest order among the religions of men. They had liturgical calendars, festal choirs, ornately dressed priests, sacrificial ceremonies. And all of it was pointing forward to Christ and patterned after heaven. But keep this in mind. They did not have, hear this, they did not have the substance all those shadows pointed toward. He had not yet come. They didn't have the heavenly reality that was being patterned in all of those things. They only had the copies. And even then, they were not allowed, catch this, to draw near to the copies. That's all they had. They didn't have the substance. They didn't have the heavenly reality. And even the copies, they weren't allowed to draw near to. Look at Hebrews 9 and chapter 8. It's talking about the, the priest going in to the mercy seat, etc. And notice what he says in verse 8 of chapter 9. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. In other words, as long as we are still going through this old covenant obligations for worship, as long as the Messiah hasn't come, that the Holy Spirit is telling us through these ceremonies that what? Through this annual atonement, through this priesthood, all of this, that the way into the holy place is not yet opened, which is symbolic for the present age, it says in verse 9. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulation for the body imposed until when? The time of Reformation. We talk about the Protestant Reformation. Maybe we ought to start with the gospel reformation. The reformation of new covenant worship. The reformation in which you, didn't, you don't have to stand afar off from God anymore and where he dwells. And, and mind you, you don't even have to stand, you're, they're standing afar off even from the copies. The patterns that point forward. Now look at chapter 10. Chapter 10 of Hebrews. And I want to say this. The Holy Spirit used the whole Aaronic priesthood, the whole liturgical calendar, the whole of the sacrificial system, the temple, the tabernacle, to declare to them this important truth. The way into heavenly reality is not yet open. Not yet open. The Holy Spirit did that so that they would look forward. The Old Testament saints would look forward to the Christ so they'd be reminded that the blood of bulls and goats does not remit sin, but only the Christ to come could do that. So they would look forward to him. Now, Sovereign Grace, how much better is the new covenant in Christ who has come? Look at Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. They couldn't enter them. It was closed. To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the new and living way that he opened us for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great 
priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Do you, do you hear that? We have confidence to enter the holy places because of the blood of Christ. Because the Messiah to whom all it pointed came and he paid for our sins, we can draw near. That's why um, we're no longer, as Paul would say in Galatians, slaves, but sons. We're sons because the heir has come. When we gather together in spiritual worship through Jesus, in the Spirit we're carried into heaven to our Father. That's the glory of gospel worship in Christ. You draw near to the Father. Draw near to Him. That's why I've said in the past that corporate worship is the greatest place to be near those who've died in Christ. Do you have family members or friends who knew Christ? Who are dead? The greatest place to draw near to them is corporate worship because it's here. It's here that the choir of the church in heaven, the church triumphant, and the choir of the church on earth, the church militant, come together in the spirit in worship to the Father. And so you sing alongside the dead saints in Christ. You worship the Christ with them. We're brought together, together in fellowship with our triune Lord. I remember when Jason's brother died. Some of you don't know that, but Jason had a brother who died a few years back. And I remember he came to church that Sunday to be near his brother. Right? That wasn't easy for him. But he knew there was no place to be nearer to him than in fellowship with our triune Lord, whom he sees with his eyes and no longer with just faith. That's why I also can't imagine why you would want to neglect the gathering of yourselves together as some are in the habit of doing. Look what he goes on to say in, in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised, promised is faithful. Verse 23 of chapter 10 of Hebrews, sorry. And let us consider how to stir one another, stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Listen, folks, the day is nearer now than it was when this was written. We shouldn't be gathering together all the less, but all the more. Did you hear their glorious privilege in gospel worship? It's especially in corporate worship that our triune Lord fellowships with his people. Now, I've had people say to me, I feel closer to the Lord when I'm having my own personal quiet time. To which I say, so what? Who cares? What difference does that make? I... I I feel more patient and kind when I'm alone, too. <laughs> now listen, I, I <laughs> doesn't mean I am, right? 
I absolutely believe the triune Lord fellowships with me when I worship on my own. Please don't hear me saying I'm denying that. I'm not at all. But the implication of the gospel is never, so, therefore, do not forsake the isolating of yourself for personal quiet times. It's never, you alone have access to the Father. We both, Jews and Gentiles, as a corporate body, have access to him. We, together, being built into a holy temple in the Lord. Do not forsake the gathering yourselves together. Now, I want to warn you, though, this glorious heavenly worship in Christ's church comes through ordinary means of grace. Did you hear that? Ordinary means of grace. Through preaching and prayer and sacrament and song. And I'm going to turn to the Trinity and those means of grace next week. But for now, I want to drive home this great privilege we have in worship. Our triune Lord fellowships with us. Through the Son and in the Spirit, we have access to the Father. He draws near to us and we to him. That is the glory of gospel worship. It isn't all this outward stuff. Compared with that glory, all the other questions I asked at the beginning are entirely irrelevant, aren't they? We can have the best music, the greatest orator, the most ornate cathedral, and still completely miss the glory of gospel worship. Now notice I said the best music. I didn't say a band or a choir because that's a taste issue. But it doesn't matter. You can still miss the glory of gospel worship. We can have a church meeting in a tent or a cave. We can have folks who aren't musically gifted leading us. Folks who aren't great orators teaching us. We can be uncomfortable, not entertained, and even not feel particularly moved. I, I, I want you to understand that because if you don't understand that, then you have, if you think worship is only when you're moved and entertained and spoken well to and the music is good, then you have just taken an entire section of the world and said they can never truly worship. What about the poor who have to meet in caves somewhere? Who are uncomfortable and cold, suffering? Who ha- what about the church in China who has to keep their voices down when they sing if they can so they don't get heard by the government? What about the folks who are watching their loved ones martyred and showing up at worship? You think they're feeling an affect of joy in that moment? Or you think they're sitting there struggling, saying, Lord, I I, I believe. Help my unbelief. I know that you're good. I know that you're there. I know that you are near to the brokenhearted. But I, I feel like you've abandoned me. I feel like you've forgotten to be gracious to me. I feel like if you love me, why aren't you showing it to me? And the band is terrible, right? (laughs) On top of it. And the speaker is kind of boring. You really think that stuff is what worship comes down to? That's not the privilege or the glory 
of gospel worship. The glory of gospel worship is quite simple, and it can be done in a tent or a cave, and it can be done without a band or a choir or an orchestra, and it can be led by someone with a terrible singing voice, no matter how distracting that is, and it can be led by someone who's a bad preacher, I mean, I mean as far as an orator, but good in the text. It can be led in all those, because the glory of gospel worship is that we, through the Son, in the Spirit, have access to the Father. That we're fellowshipping with the Holy Trinity. Man, we get distracted by so much just completely irrelevant stuff. We miss why we gather here. But here's what we need to know and meditate on. Here is the glory of gospel worship. The triune Lord fellowships with us. Let me conclude with a comment from John Owen on Ephesians 2.18. John Owen wrote two sermons on Ephesians 18. I would encourage you all to read them. It's volume 9, part 2, sermons 3 and 4. I wish every young future pastor, at least, would read them. Just listen to this, what he says. This is the general order of gospel worship, the great rubric of our service. Here in general lies its decency, that it respects the mediation of the Son through whom we have access, and the supplies and assistance of the Spirit, and a regard unto God as a Father. He that fails in any one of these, he breaks all order in gospel worship. If we either come not unto it by Jesus Christ, or perform it not in the strength of the Holy Ghost, or in it go not unto God as a father, we transgress all the rules of this worship. Acting faith on Christ for admission and on the Holy Ghost for his assistance, so going on in his strength, and on God, even the Father, for acceptance is the work of the soul in this worship. That it has anything more glorious to be conversant about, I am as yet to learn. Let me pray. Father, we ask, we ask that we would understand that our souls have nothing more glorious to be conversant about than the truth that through him, through your son Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. We fellowship with our Trinitarian Lord. That is true in the most mean circumstances. Father, we pray that we would we would reassess our own hearts and minds in light of the truth that, that we so often get distracted from the gospel and the glory of worship that we have because you in love sent your son, because your son in grace purchased us, and because your spirit assists us, applies all that to us, so that through faith we are saved, born again, a new creation, adopted as sons, that we have access to our Father,
And that is the glorious of all privileges, most glorious of all privileges we have. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.